Good morning, everybody. This is Omar Strato with the Tilted Lawyer Podcast, and I have lots that we have to talk about this morning. I want to have a candid discussion on mental health and the reason why so many children have found themselves in peril at the hands of their parents. I'm going to talk about a couple of cases, the first being Thomas Rhoda. Uh, earlier this week, he was arrested for murdering his son in cold blood with an angle grinder, which is a power tool used to grind things. Um, there was another case prior to that one, uh, a, a lady by the name of Brandy Hutchins. She was involved in a lengthy custody battle that she lost. And the judge in that case had ordered for her to return her son to his father. Rather than doing that, uh, she took the life of her son, the life of another older daughter that she had, and on herself, and um, left everybody to kind of figure out what was going on. There was another case, an ongoing criminal trial that we are also going to discuss involving Dr. Amy Harwick. She was the famous Hollywood sex therapist. She had dated Drew Carey for a spell. Um, she had a boyfriend who had significant mental health issues. He ended up murdering her. Well, he's actually on trial for her murder right now. We're going to talk about that case coming up. So let's get started. Whatever you might be going through and wherever you might be, this is Omar Serrano with the Tilted Lawyer Podcast. I'm here to take your mind off of things. Yes, I'm an attorney. No, I'm not giving you legal advice. We're going to sit and talk like people as these are the candid thoughts of one practicing attorney and it's after hours. So have a seat. Feel free to have a drink and join me. Let's get started. The Rhoda case is a... Um, it's a simple story, but it's extremely complex as it deals with a rise in child abuse cases and generally children just being in peril at the hands of their parents. There was a study that came out we're going to talk about um, in a little bit, but let's, let's talk about what happened to this young boy. Um, it involves the murder of 16-year-old Stephen Lee Rhoda. Uh, but he was murdered by his father, Stephen Thomas Rota. Um, basically, what happened is around or on Labor Day um, in the city of Lake Wales, Florida, young Stephen is a teenager, 16 years old. He was brutally murdered in what authorities described as a frenzied attack. Uh, his father was armed with an angle grinder, and the murder had occurred inside his grandparents' mobile home. While his grandfather was out, I guess, tending to his wife, if she was in the middle of rehab, um, I'm assuming uh, that is physical rehab and not for substance abuse. That's my assumption. I, didn't, I haven't seen or any confirmation about that. But the, te the details of this case are extremely heartbreaking. Imagine coming home to your grandson murdered by way of a power tool and your son tells you, hey... Um, you might not want to go in there or you might want to call the cops. I just killed somebody. He said some kind of variation on that. Um, and you walk in and you find that scene. Um, it's not, I mean, I don't, I don't know what reaction you're supposed to have to that, but that's what 
this grandfather uh, was faced with on Labor Day. Um, there has been a study, according to, um, there's a lady named uh, Maria Fitzpatrick. She is a professor at Cornell University. She wrote a study uh, citing that as many as 13% of children are maltreated. This was taken uh, from an article by Chloe Mayer. Uh, she wrote on September 5th um, when she was detailing what happened in this case. Um, she writes, the, dis- the distressing case comes after experts warn how widespread child abuse is across the U.S. with a study published in August of 22 suggesting that school closures during the pandemic may have allowed some cases to slip under the radar and worsen in severity. Child maltreatment is a vexing problem in the U.S., said study author Maria Fitzpatrick, a professor of economics and public policy at Cornell University's Jeb E. Brooks School of Public Policy. She says, to protect children, we need to better understand why so many are maltreated, 13% according to one study. Early detection is crucial because it leads to a quicker intervention that can result in providing a child with a safe, permanent home. And I don't know how much of the pandemic played a role in that. Um, I do. I mean, everybody remembers the pandemic and, uh, you know, everybody's stuck inside with their spouses, with uh, their children. Um, I had <laughs> I had a um, I had a COVID baby. Um, I had a one year old and then, you know, we had a COVID baby at that same time. And so when the pandemic struck, I had two babies in the house and, you know, my, myself, my wife. And, you know, I was still very much active and working, and I had my practice, and I just so happened uh, to be a practitioner of family law. And what I observed during the pandemic was an extreme increase in the amount of divorces um, and the amount of domestic violence cases and the amount of uh, child abuse cases, an extreme amount uh, just because nobody was allowed to go to work, everybody was kept inside, and there was no venting um, outside of the home and you know it, it, was, it created this boiling pot where things are bound to explode so this lady Fitzpatrick is trying to make the correlation and of course I don't know what was going on with dad uh, but that boy I mean he seemed like he was doing okay he was you know he was a young man with a bright future He's, he was uh, in the 11th grade uh, he had designs on becoming an electrician which is a very good career if you were considering ever taking that up I mean those people make a lot of money, six figures easily, easily. Um, he was helping his grandfather um, by staying there at the house, uh, presumably because his wife was in rehab um, or rehabbing some kind of an injury. I don't know uh, the details of all of that. But um, he was about to start a job at Burger King because he wanted to save up some money for a car. Um, all those dreams, um, all of those uh, hopes, everything he was going to become, you know, he's literally growing up and Take yourself back to how you were when you were 16 years old. I remember when I was 16, 15, around that time, I had my first job at this place called, it was a, this a boys camp, the RM Piles Boys Camp. And it was up in the mountains. And uh, it was probably one of the greatest experiences of my childhood, you know, going up there and I was all excited and they, they teach you a lot of discipline and you get to be there with all these other people, and they, they teach you things about life. And, you know, I did really well up there, so they gave me my first job, and I remember my very first paycheck. And my job was, you know, I went up there for a couple of weeks and helped out um, as, like, a, not like a counselor, but, you know, I was just kind of there. 
like doing dishes, washing dishes, keeping the place clean, keeping uh, the, the boys in order or, or whatever. But it was a good time. It was up in the mountains. Time of my life, 15 years old. And I remember my very first paycheck. It was for $124. And I remember thinking, wow, what am I going to do with $124? I had all these things that I wanted to do. Um, I was going to buy a video game. I was going to, or video games. I was going to go to the movies. I was going to go do all these things with my friends. And, you know, I didn't, I wasn't quite old enough to drive a car yet, but you know, just these innocent dreams and hopes. And that was where this young boy was in life. Just, you know, we're just a kid and trying to figure out what it is that he was going to do with life. And it's that magical time of life where you can literally, you literally can be whatever you want to be. Like if you want to be a lawyer, then, you know, you could just do well in school and, you know, do the things that are required of a lawyer and go and pursue your undergrad and go and pursue law school and take the bar, pass, and you can do all of those things because you have the time to do those things. If you wanted to uh, be a carpenter, if you wanted to, um, you still, some of those, some kids at 15, 16 years old still have designs on becoming a professional athlete. Some will make it, some won't, but you know, the world is their oyster. They can do whatever they want. And so there's this special time of life and, you know, they have to put up with their parents who are not of that time. Like I can't, you know, as a 43 year old man, I could never uh, just wind up my practice and just quit. I mean, I could, but you know, I'm pretty well ingrained in these, uh, in the, uh, in my career in law. Um, there's not, you know, if I wanted to do something else, it would be significantly more difficult. You know, there's bills to pay. There's a mortgage. You got a wife and you got kids. You got all these things. You know, 16-year-old, you don't have any of those things. So here's this boy, and he's over there. He's helping his dad, and or he's helping his grandfather. And for whatever reason, whatever was going on with his father, uh, he decided to murder his son with an angle grinder, which suggests an extreme level of anger and rage in whatever was going on inside of his father. And let's talk about who he was. Who was his dad? His father, uh, Stephen Thomas Rhoda, was 37 years old. And uh, he has a criminal history spanning across multiple states. And at the time of his arrest, he was wanted uh, for a misdemeanor in South Carolina. Misdemeanor warrants usually aren't that big of a deal, but he had one. Um, his life... Uh, seems to have had a cascade of issues, um, including previous psychotic episodes, drug use, uh, methamphetamine. So when the when the grandfather found his his grandson on that day, he had left the residence at around eight a.m. and only Stephen Lee Rhoda, the dad and his son were at the residence. He comes home at around 11 a.m. He'd only been gone for a few hours, and before going inside the home at 11 a.m., the victim's grandfather was met by his son, Stephen, who asked him for a cigarette, giving him a cryptic warning. His quote, according to this article, was, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. I killed someone. You may need to call the police. The 16-year-old victim was found inside the dining area of the home, according to the affidavit. Stephen Thomas Rhoda viciously and brutally hit his son's head with the angle grinder so hard that it broke the tool. 
which was found next to the teenager's body. Deputies later found Stephen Thomas Rota on Highway 60 near Westlake Wales Road North. He had blood on his jeans and a fresh laceration on the knuckle of his right hand index finger. The document said during an interview with detectives, the victim's father, Stephen Thomas Rota, said he thought his son died years ago when he was a child and other conflicting statements. According to the sheriff's office, Stephen Thomas Rota showed no remorse or concern for killing his son. The Polk County Sheriff said the suspect had a history of psychotic episodes as well as a problem with methamphetamine use. And during his first appearance in court, Stephen Thomas Rota claimed to be from Montana, going by a different name, and he also claimed to own the NFL. Just... Yes, the football NFL, National Football League. Uh, The suspect was charged with first-degree murder. Um, He is currently being held on bond as of Tuesday, September 5th. So clearly, the father is a deeply disturbed, troubled individual. And, you know, early intervention. I don't know. Who is intervening in that case? There's not really any record of of uh, CPS going to investigate anything, early intervention, sure. But intervention for who? I mean, clearly, dad had, everybody knew that he had these mental health disorders. His dad had to have known that he had these mental health disorders. Um, he had made those statements uh, to the police, and they kind of just brushed it off. Of his ha- he was having a dark episode, which suggests that he had had dark episodes before. They were aware of his erratic behavior. Had it ever risen to the level of violence? Probably not to that degree, but I mean, they they were clearly aware that something was going on with their son. Um, And I don't know. What do you think? Did the system fail Stephen, little 16-year-old Stephen? Social services at schools? I mean, at what point should the system have intervened to prevent this violent episode? I don't know, probably, uh, and I don't know what symptoms there were to even speak on. I'm not even sure what the living arrangement was. I don't know if he lived with his dad. It says here that he was living with his, with his grandfather. I don't know if his dad had, was living with his grandfather as well. So it's hard to say. But I guess the question is, as a society, are we providing enough support uh, to families that are plagued by mental health issues? What are we doing mental health-wise for all of these individuals. It's a crazy changing landscape that we're living in. And I'm going to talk about the next case here in a minute. I thought it was worth listening to Sheriff Grady Judd on the Polk County Sheriff's Office. Um, he got up and gave a press conference and called Stephen Thomas Rota an evil, evil man. And I've seen this guy give these press conferences. He's, he's, he's almost famous notoriously for giving these press conferences when we're dealing with crimes of extreme circumstances such as this one. But he gets up there and he does this press conference and he calls Rhoda an evil, evil man promising to do their best uh, to see him behind bars for the rest of his life. Um, in the wake of the event, obviously the city is in deep mourning. I'd imagine the family is in deep mourning as well. This next case is equally as heartbreaking. Um, it involves... It involves a mother that lost a custody dispute with her father or with the father of her child. She was ordered by a judge to hand over her child um, 
back to her father. And rather than do that, she just had other designs. Um, this is the article that we're going to read. It's uh, from the Hindustan Times. Uh, they talk about Brandy Hutchins, mother of two, kills her kids amid custody battle loss, violating a court order. So Brandy Hutchins, mother of two, took the lives of her two children before ending her own. Following a custody battle loss, the Polk County Sheriff revealed that the 10-year-old son and 19-year-old daughter fell victim to their mother's apparent murder-suicide after a judge ruled that the boy should be with his father residing in Maine. The incident occurred within the family's mobile home after Brandy Hutchins defied a court order to hand over custody of her son to his father. Officials had been alerted about the breach and a frantic search for the missing child, Aiden Hutchins, was launched over the weekend. The search ended in the discovery of the lifeless body of Aiden, the body of his older half-sister and their mother inside a Lake Wales residence. Sheriff Grady Judd's words conveyed the profound sorrow surrounding the incident he shared during a press conference. Brady Hutchins, from every indication in our investigation, now has murdered her 10-year-old child and her 19-year-old child, murdered them, and then subsequent to that, she shot herself. The sheriff emphasized the rarity of such extreme violence associated with court orders, stating, my heart breaks for all of the family. We're devastated for this beautiful 10-year-old child, all because mom did not want to turn the child over to the rightful father pursuant to a court order. There was a social media post um, from Hutchins' father, from little Aiden's father. Uh, this is from Hutchins' race. It's a social media post, and he's, he posted, It is with a heavy heart that I'm writing this to give everyone an update about my son, Aiden Hutchins, who was missing and taken by his mother on August 25th, 2023, who decided to murder him. He was killed by her today on August 27th, 2023. He will forever be in my heart. I did not deserve this. Rest in peace, my sweet boy. I will see you again. I love you. And then there's a picture here. But that is uh, Aiden with his dad. That's the 10-year-old boy. <laughs> it's a looks like a funny little kid, man. Wearing silly hats with his dad. Brandy Hutchins displayed no previous signs of violence or criminal behavior. The 19-year-old daughter who's father differed from her younger brothers was not directly involved in the custody dispute the boy's father took to social media to announce the event and then you know we just read what he had posted so a heartbreaking case all around and uh, how do you make sense of any of that um there wasn't a whole lot of information on uh the daughter the 19 year old daughter of brandy hutchins but her name was but her name was hannah griner uh, she was also a victim. She lost her life in the hands of her own mother. Um, so piggybacking off the other case, I feel like this case, and it's hard to say because you go to court and you're, you're fighting a custody battle and you get an order for your client returning his child to her. I'd imagine the reason for that was because they did a full-on um, custody trial that emphasized that it would be in the child's best interest to live with his dad in Maine for whatever reasons. It could have been for a myriad of different reasons. It could have been because it was just better set up for a 10 year old boy. There was better schools. There was better an environment. Uh, maybe there were safety concerns. I have no idea about the details of that case, but the judge makes the order. And then 
you know, the child is obviously with mom at that time. He's ordered, she is ordered to hand the child over and she just doesn't. And so it's hard to say that this was a failure of mental health evaluators unless you wanted to say that she should have been not allowed access to the children for some reason. And, and what do you even say? How, how, do you, how would you have known? There would have been some, there would have had to have been some kind of safety episode such as um, some mental health professional had evaluated her and deemed her a danger to herself or to her child or to both she had some kind of mental illness that was preventing her or putting others in danger. In, in danger, That would be the grounds. That would be how. But how do you identify that? Mental health is so misunderstood. And, you know, I talk to mental health professionals all the time. I, and you, as, as, you, as you could imagine, every single one of my clients tell me that the other parent has some form of mental illness. And like 95% of the time, it's, I know that this gets thrown around a lot, but I just want you to know that uh, his dad has narcissistic disorder or something like that. Everyone throws around the word narcissist. He's a stone cold narcissist. It's not diagnosed or anything, but I know that's what he is. I feel like people misunderstand what a narcissist is. Um, And can, they, they confuse people exhibiting narcissistic traits as having this disorder. It's actually a real disorder um, that involves multiple levels of psychopathy. And I don't have a mental health professional here to talk about um, what those are. But there, I just know that it is a genuine diagnosis that occurs, that comes down from real psychologists. Um, it's not just because somebody's being selfish or not catering to your needs at the same time as their own or putting their needs above yours. That doesn't make them a, nor- a narcissist. It might make them an a-hole, but it doesn't necessarily give them a mental illness. And so it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. If we're going to throw around allegations of mental health for every single case that we come across, then how are we going to know what the real ones are? And it's very rare then I, I, to be honest with you, it is very rare that I find a case where there is no allegations of some kind of behavioral misconduct on the part of the other side or some kind of mental health disorder or, I don't know, this lady is crazy. She just won't leave us alone and she won't let us move on. And you know what? To tell you the truth, I think that she's really sad that we broke up and she's jealous of my new life or they'll say that about the guy. It's always some kind of a measure of she won't move on, and so she's doing this to get back at us. And, and the reality of it is it's probably much simpler. You guys were once together. You guys are probably in love. Maybe you guys are married. Maybe you guys had designs on getting married. At one point, you guys liked each other enough to make a child, maybe multiple children. And in the course of all of that, in the course of our changing universe, um, the mechanics of a relationship change over time because of changing needs, because of changing dynamics, because of malfeasance on one party or another, and people split. And when people split and they invest so much time and energy into the other person, it creates a, well, it creates a mental crisis. If not a mental illness, it creates a moment of mental crisis. And we've all been there and had these moments of mental crisis. They could be as simple as everybody's had that moment where they break up with somebody that, you know, they didn't want to break up with her. Maybe you got dumped when you were a kid and you experienced for the first time when you were a kid. And when you're a child, if you recall, when everything is out of whack and all of your hormones are out of whack and you have no life experience, 
on how to interpret what is going on uh, with in yourself or in the universe around you. Uh, you start feeling, you know, the pains in your stomach and you start uh, feeling all of these crazy, weird thoughts. And it's it's extreme level of depression that hopefully you don't feel ever as an adult, but, you know, some people do because it's hard to get over those emotions, those feelings. Some people attach um, attach themselves to the feelings that they felt when they were in that state of mental crisis, and it causes them to react in certain ways. Some people seek it out. Some people start fights with other people because they want, they need that level of extreme conflict and anger because it releases dopamine and it releases you know, in your pleasure receptors in your brain, something that maybe you become addicted to the negativity. I don't know. You know, everybody knows couples that fight for the sake of fighting because it's just what they do and then they make up afterwards. And mental illness is a tricky thing. In the case of this lady, I have no idea what gone on, what 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 had went on in her custody case. Um, I just know that a judge deemed it in the best interest of the young Aiden to be with his dad. And you know what? That judge was correct because um, I don't know many people and I haven't come across many people that I, was, that I would suspect would be capable of murdering their child, their 10-year-old child. And uh, Brandy was. Here's what the California courts have to say about it. The, Cal- the California courts, they present this self-help guide. Uh, to individuals about how to deal with child custody evaluations. And um, I don't know, let's see how helpful it is. And they kind of, what happens in a child custody evaluation? So a child custody evaluation, they're talking about, and this happens regardless of whether or not um, a judge believes that there's mental illness or not. We usually call these uh, 730 evaluations. It's based off of... um, the family code in California, 730, uh, that deals with expert witnesses and their persuasive abilities in a custody case. Um, and what happens is, according to this website, this is for people that are going through this with or without lawyers, it says that you, if you and your child's other parent cannot agree on a parenting plan, the judge can order a child custody evaluation Usually parents pay a fee for this service. Oh, and it's expensive. It's probably somewhere between seven and twelve thousand dollars. And usually the parties split the cost. That doesn't that's not even attorney fees. That's just for a psychologist to do this evaluation. Um, there's cheaper ways to go about it. Um, but the most effective are these uh these 730 evals that we do. The judge will appoint a child custody evaluator to do the investigation. A child custody evaluator is a trained psychologist or other mental health professional. The evaluator may be someone from the court, but might not. Uh, might be a private professional. Um, the investigation usually takes around two months, and this is what they do, at least in the state of California. I don't know if they do this in Florida or other places, but I know they do this for... I deal, I deal with this all the time in California. But the outline of it is the investigate the evaluator meets with the parents... Um, and the child, they usually speak with uh, the parents individually and together or together. Uh, They may want to visit in the home and observe how you guys interact with the child. Uh, They meet with adults um, who know the children well, meaning grandparents, cousins, sisters, aunts, uncles, those kinds of people. Uh, They might speak with the children's teachers 
uh, daycare providers, doctors, other adults who live in the home, um, as well as the children. Uh, they review child school and health records, you know, their grades, their mental, dental, uh, mental records, dental records, health records. Uh, they might look at police reports that have been generated as a result of incidents that might have occurred. Um, any court records, and there would have been, obviously, they're in court. There's going to be court proceedings. They're going to take a look at those. Any mediators' evaluations, and there's, before we get to, uh, professional evaluators there's usually a, a mediator from the court that meets with the couple um, or reports from providers of anger management parenting classes uh, they the evaluator may require you or the other parent to have a psychological evaluation may may and that's usually reserved for parents that are behaving poorly or badly or if there's um legitimate allegations of the possibility of mental illness sometimes not all the time but a judge will order that like for example it's really common if a parent accuses the other parents of taking a sexual interest in children and they offer up some kind of uh, corroborating story well uh, that parent that is accused will be psychologically evaluated and you know it'll be this really intrusive um, test that they run uh, and then they report their findings back to the court of course it's not limited to that but it, it, it runs the gamut after the investigation the evaluator will write a confidential report uh, the report will include a recommendation for a parenting plan the report is confidential but by law some professionals may view it um, and if there were serious allegations of abuse the report will also include recommendations for how to ensure the child's safety and meet any therapeutic needs. And usually that's in the form of ordering that the child be placed in therapy or, or counseling of some sort, sometimes with the parents, sometimes without, sometimes it's conjoint counseling. Um, and oftentimes they'll leave the parameters or the details of that counseling to mental health professionals. And that's what they do. That's what they do in California. Is it enough? Well, I can tell you this. I know some really smart mental health professionals that are really, really good at what they do. And I've never been able to get one of them to tell me that they could diagnose with 100% certainty whether or not somebody has a mental illness or they don't. The obvious cases are obvious, and those cases are, are usually not at issue. It's these fringe cases where there may be some under some 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 undercurrent of mental illness that sometimes manifests itself but when you have those cases typically we're not going full on you know we're going to diagnose them with a mental illness and if they do it'll be something like well major depressive disorder they're depressed and you know depression is not all that uncommon if you tell that to a judge they're not going to unless there's ample evidence to suggest uh, think anything of a diagnosis like that uh, to go so far as to say that because a parent is depressed that the child is in danger. There'd have to be something else. Um, for example, uh, self-harm, threats of suicide, um, threats to others, you know, those kinds of things. But oftentimes mental health uh, individuals, people that have legitimate mental health concerns, hide it really, really well. Now, I'll tell you what, there. I've seen cases of mine, I've had clients of mine, that I wasn't so sure if they were all together there. And 
I, I've, I've definitely had some obvious cases where I would literally talk to a guy and um, he just had this really whiny, fumbly voice. I don't mean whiny as, in, as, as an insult, but it was literally like he was, as he would talk, it was as if he was on the verge of tears constantly. And it was like this squeaky voice um, to the point where I would feel uncomfortable because I don't, I didn't, I got the impression that I was talking to a person that wasn't there with me. It was, it was, it was startling. That was an obvious case. And he, he legitimately had a mental health concern. It got so bad to the point where he thought that I, um, you know, there was this big conspiracy that I was involved in. He thought that I was, you know, trying to, um, I don't know, make it seem like he was crazy because I would ask him questions or I would tell him, usually when I have, um, my consultations with people, I will give them the good and the bad of their case and this guy could not handle any mention of, you know, possibility that he wasn't going to be 100% successful to the point where um, he would just have these really inappropriate responses or outbursts or falling into tears in a way that you would not expect a normal 30 to 40-year-old man to do. And um, I don't know what happened to that gentleman. And we ended up resolving that case uh, by way of stipulation with the other attorney um, we worked out that uh, all the parties were going to be involved in counseling. My client was going to involve himself in counseling um, and seek help and, and provide reports to the court uh, of his progress. And if he didn't go that, then he was going to lose out on visitation time. Um, and then I, I lost sight of the case because um, we stopped representation. We stopped representation after those orders were made. The case was over. So I don't, I don't know whatever became of that gentleman but yeah it was the one time that i could remember where this guy is obviously there's something wrong something is wrong there's other times where it's not like that it's, it's just more subtle where people were they will hear you and they will understand everything that you're saying and you will believe that they're there with you but then they will just get in their own minds when they get home by themselves and just completely lose it and then send you, send you these ranting, raging. I always have this rule with my clients. Um, and it's, uh, look, if you have the urge to send mean text messages to the other parents, don't. You know, before you do anything like that, I want you to call me first. And we're going to talk about what is going on. And we're going to talk about how to handle it. But if your instinct is you want to send some angry text messages, that's going to create this incendiary situation. That's It's not going to do you any good. We need to not do that. So let's figure out a way around it. So my rule is perhaps, you know, I mean, I don't do this so much anymore. Um, but when I first started practicing family law, I would do this all the time. Where it's like, look, um, if you feel the urge to send these mean, angry text messages Text me first. Let me review it. You know, get it off your chest. One person really took that to heart. And I'm when I tell you, I got like this long string of text messages, like at two, three, four in the morning. Um, you know, the guy was obviously intoxicated, just judging from the quality of the text messages and how they got progressively worse going forward. And he was going on these rants, talking about the government and talking about aliens and talking about, um, you know, all kinds of crazy. It, it was, just, it was nuts. But prior to that, there was no indication there was anything wrong with that guy. Mental illness is difficult to diagnose. So how was anybody to know 
that Brandy was capable of such a thing. And it's, again, it's hard because I don't have all the facts. I don't know what people knew about her, but I can only imagine a scenario. Oftentimes, um, I've dealt with cases where custody is flipped. One parent loses custody in favor of the other because the court deems it in the best interest of the child uh, for the, the kid to be with the other parent. And we have to deal with uh, these extreme long absences, you know, changing of realities and things of, of, of that nature. Um, you're always nervous about what could possibly happen, but you never think that it's going to rise to the level uh, that one parent is going to take the life of the child. And it's hard. It's this weird dichotomy where you have both parents. They both say in open court, you know, backwards and forwards that they want what's best for their child. They love their child. They only want to give them the best life they possibly can. And, you know, they think that they're the parent that could give their this child their, their best life. And, you know, we talk about these things. It's hard to imagine a parent going from that to just ending a, a child's life. And, and when that kind of thing happens, it's usually without warning, as it was in the case of this lady. But when you're in the throes of these custody cases, I mean, it really, really takes a toll. I always say that the most successful custody orders are one where the parents don't talk at all. Where literally, if you guys say, um, you know, 10 to 20 words to get uh, to each other in the course of a year, that is a successful co-parenting relationship because the assumption is you don't need to talk. Both parents have gone on and, and they're living their own lives. They both love their children. They have a custody parenting plan that works, that is successful, and, you know, it runs like clockwork. There's no need to talk. Um, everybody just follows the orders and there's no issues, and it's great. It's perfect. It's the, it's the least amount of stress possible. And yeah, you still got to deal with the other parent because, you know, that's still your child's father. That's still your child's mom. You got your, hey, you got an 18 year sentence with this other person that you once made a baby with and you got to deal with it. Where, pa where parents get in trouble is when they try to continue to ingratiate themselves into the lives of the other parent. I'll never understand it. I'll never understand why parents that break up have to get to know the other, you know, the brand new wife, the brand new husband, and they have to go and, you know, um, on, they have to go out to dinner together and they have to have meetings together and have to discuss like in the living room. You can do that, but you can imagine the cavalcade of emotions that that kind of thing is going to introduce into that dynamic and the amount of rage, jealousy, whatever, that doesn't have to be there, but is there just by virtue of you guys are now in this dangerous dynamic uh, where anything can happen. And imagine, what about how it's affecting the children? Um, there was research published in the journal American Sociological Review that shows that a parental separation and divorce put children and adolescents at an increased risk at an increased risk for adjustment disorder, child custody, lower grades, misconduct, substance abuse and depression. Um, and that's heartbreakingly true. As a lawyer, I really try my best not to have to uh, call up children as witnesses because you're literally putting them in the middle of these custody cases. 
forcing them to choose between one parent or the other. It's a heartbreaking scenario. And I've never seen a cross-examination of a child or a direct examination for that matter go well. The child's always confused. You know, they're saying they're doing their best. It's a foreign environment to them. Uh, they're, they're, they got both parents uh, looking at them with their lawyers most of the time. And there's a judge there, some guy. Some judges are really good about keeping that under wraps and you don't have to put the child in that scenario. We could talk in chambers, but even then, you know, who is this guy that I'm talking to about my parents and he's asking me about um, what I think about my mom and dad? You know, what are they supposed to say? What do you want them to say? They're put in the middle of that constantly. That's just in the courtroom. Imagine, and I know a lot of you are, have, have, have lived this, where, you know, many of you come from single-parent homes and, you know, we're having to visit the other parent where there's a visitation schedule and, you know, they don't like each other and in the midst of them not liking each other, they're constantly talking negatively about each other. As a child, that is exhausting. As a child, that sucks. But that's what these kids are subjected to and they don't have any choice. This is the cards you were dealt and um, for whatever reason, your parents are, are, are no longer together, and this is just how it is. This is your life with your parents. You're going to have to get to know them individually, and you're going to have to tune out the negative talk that they are throwing on you about the other. That's just the way that life is for these kids. We try our best in the courts to limit that kind of thing, but nobody, it's, it's not effective, honestly. And um, I tell my clients all the time that you're not supposed to talk negative about the other parent. They're not supposed to talk negative about you. It's like, well, I know they're not supposed to, but she is talking negative about me. So what am I supposed to do? And then it's, you know, well, document as best you can. We'll try to address it in court, you know, but once you're out of court, then what? You can't change who people are. People have these inclinations. They're going to do it. um, You know, either they're going to do it subtly or they're going to be obvious about it, but it's going to happen. And the children are going to be in the middle of it. Um, according to American Psychologists Association, uh, these issues are magnified when parents don't get along, and exactly what we're talking about. Parental conflict often takes a profound emotional toll on children caught in the middle, leading to increased school dropout rates, behavioral problem, mental health issues. Um, and yeah, as a family attorney, I find this this is just kind of how it is. And the children, I mean, children are. They're so absorbent. They absorb everything. And one of the things that they absorb is the feelings of the parents. When a parent is sad, the children are sad. When a parent is angry, the children are angry. They manifest the things that they see. They repeat the things that they heard are said. And, you know, if they're growing up around that constant negativity, it's going to stress them out, man. They're just trying to grow up. They're just trying to survive. They're literally trying to learn Um, how to structure sentences and they're having to deal with all of this stuff. You know, they're, they're just trying to color draw with colored pencils and they're having to deal with mom and dad arguing over the phone or, um, I can't see my dad. Why? Um, you know, I could only talk to him through FaceTime for 15 minutes. Okay. You know, and then they don't know. And and the reason why those orders is because mom tells a big lie to the judge that the judge has to take seriously because it involves child safety and, you know, the, the guy's attorney is doing his best to get it taken care of, but he has to prove that the allegations are false first before anything could happen. It's just, it sucks. Family law, being a family law practitioner sucks. It just does. And it's constant that we're dealing with this kind of stuff. 
So there's a study um, that I thought was fascinating. Um, it was published by the California Cognitive Behavioral Institute uh, by Kathy Mathis, who is a psychologist. Um, she described the common signs of emotional stress in child and divorce separation custody battles as follows. So in infants and toddlers, how it manifests is regression in sleeping, toilet training, eating or learning new skills, sleep disturbances, clinginess with parents, general crankiness, temper tantrums, crying. Um, and, you know, that's hard to diagnose because what most people don't really understand what toddlers or infants are actually absorbing or, or seeing, but I, I, I sense that they probably feel and absorb uh, the tension that is in the air. And yeah, it could probably cause all of those things. When children get to be about three to five years old, uh, there is a regression by returning to security blankets, discarded toys, lapses in toilet training, thumb sucking, making up fantasy stories, blaming themselves, feeling guilty, bedtime anxiety, frequent waking, fear of abandonment, clinginess, irritability, aggression, temper tantrums. And you know how that gets diagnosed by the parent? Oh, they're just being a kid. Yeah, they're being a kid that is exhibiting symptoms of the stress that has befallen them by virtue of their parents can't get along and they're having to make sense of it all as a three to five year old still watching, um, you know, whatever kids watch nowadays. Um, from six to eight years old, um, there's pervasive sadness. Here's, and I've seen, I've definitely seen this one. I've seen it in courtrooms. I've seen it. Uh, I'll never understand why parents bring their children to court. If you bring your child to court, and you haven't been asked to do that, you're an idiot. Leave them at home. Do not bring your children inside of a family law courtroom. What is wrong with you? But I see people do this, and they're, they're usually six to eight years old. And what, what I see is exactly as this lady describes, pervasive sadness, feeling abandoned and rejected, crying and sobbing. Oh, I've seen that. Um, afraid of their worst fears are coming true. Uh, reconciliation fantasies, you know, between the parents, loyalty conflicts, feelings physically torn apart, impulse control problems, disorganized behavior. I've seen all of those things. And, you know, uh, from 9 to 12 years old, uh, you, the, you see family issues clearly. They try to bring order to the situation, fear of loneliness, intense anger toward parents. They blame for the divorce. Uh, physical com Physical complaints. Headaches, stomach aches. Uh, they become overactive to avoid thinking about family problems. They feel ashamed of the situation and different from other children. And then when they get to be adolescents, you know, we're getting ready to graduate them into the world of adulthood. Um, they manifest these symptoms, and they've probably been dealing with it all their life at this point, but there's a fear of being isolated and lonely. Uh, they see the parents as leaving them and being unavailable to them. They feel hurried to achieve independence feel in competition with parents, worry about their own future loves and marriage, preoccupied with survival. They're uncomfortable with parents' dating and sexuality. Chronically tired, trouble concentrating, mourning the loss of their family, childhood, and future as a family unit. And so that's, you know, when you're angry and you're, you're carrying on about what a a bad person the other parent is and you know you have all these designs and all of these uh, grievances about them about what happened in your personal relationship 
about why they didn't do this, this, or that, or you know why they did do, do these other things, um, and you have children and you're venting to them, perhaps unintentionally, um, this is what is in store for your children. And the, hard, the, the world is hard enough, you know, without having to put up with all of this other stuff from the parents. But this is what your children go through, and in some cases, in extreme circumstances, for a parent who is so selfish as to, um, you know, I can't have my way. And so it's it's like these murder suicides, like you're breaking up with me, well, then nobody can have you. But she does it to her child, robbing that 10-year-old little boy who was so excited because he knew, he thought he was going home with his dad to go live with him in Maine. He's probably going to be on the baseball team. He was going to probably, you know, he's going to have a good time with dad. It's supposed to be this happy time. And, um... Who knows what kind of horrific life he was living with mom at the time. Um, just the, the, the immense depression, anger that she was going through. Um, I, I can't even imagine what that young boy was going through. And to have it end the way that it did, you know, with designs um, going back with dad, where he would have been safe, where he would have had a future, where he would have been able to grow into an adult. And, um, you know, talk about this maybe in therapy many years later to deal with whatever he's gone through um, up to this point. He's never going to get a chance. And then that poor 19-year-old girl um, had nothing to do with any of this. Took her life, too. And now she's gone. And and Brandy is gone. And um, the rest of us are left to, you know, with a story like this that we talk about and we're trying to make sense of it all and... I have a very deep perspective when it comes to these specific kind of cases. Listen, I had no designs on being a family law attorney. Um, I really didn't want to get involved. If you asked me about what kind of law I wanted to practice, family family law would have been at the end of my list. Family law just kind of found me because at the time when I started my law firm, I was mostly a criminal defense attorney, civil litigator. Um, But in the course of that, um, somehow, um, a good, a good portion of my practice turned into these custody cases. And I take on, I took on these cases because, you know, people need help, domestic violence situations. I took them on because I'm generally trying to help these children or parents, um, be able to have access to their children. Um, it's complicated. And, um, sometimes you don't pick the fights that you want to fight. Sometimes the fights draw you in. And that's kind of what happened to me. That's how I'm, that's how I ended up taking on some of these cases. Um, but let's talk about one more case before I get too far deep in the weeds with it. Uh, let's talk about Amy Harwick. So the Amy Harwick case, she was allegedly murdered by her ex-boyfriend, a gentleman named Gareth Pursehouse. And if, you know, I mean, I've seen, I saw pictures of him before, if you see the video footage of him as he sits in trial, uh, he looks pretty bad. He's a, he's had a rough go of it. He does not look um, the same as when he was dating Amy. But um, this was a case that shook Hollywood. It raised alarming questions about domestic violence and stalking. We just talked about domestic violence um, when we talked about the Depp v. Heard case and about you know some of the dynamics of that. Um, but back in 2011, just briefly going over the timeline, back in 2011, Harwick and Pursehouse, 
Uh, they dated briefly, uh, but they broke up because of there was allegations of abuse. Um, fast forward to January 2020, about nine years later, there was a chance meeting at an event. Nine years later, they, they were at some kind of event, and it reignited Purse House's obsession with Harwick. And this is taken uh, from an article. Uh, the link's going to be below as far as all of the uh, articles that I got all of this info from. But um, the opening statements for the murder trial against Gareth Pursehouse, who killed his ex-girlfriend, Hollywood sex therapist Amy Harwick, started on Tuesday, August 29th. Pursehouse is facing murder and burglary charges for Harwick's death. Investigators claim that a month before her death, Harwick met Pursehouse at an adult industry award show on January 16th, 2020 at the JW Marriott in Los Angeles. Initially, he reacted with anger and hostility, and he was yelling, and she kind of jumped into therapist mode, the victim's friend, Hernando Chavez, said. Chavez said, Pursehouse approached Harwick again after the show. So the pair started dating each other in 2011, uh, prosecutors explained in their opening statements. However, after a year, Harwick ends the relationship and files for a restraining order against Pursehouse claiming that he physically and emotionally abused her. After cutting off all the communications, the two bump into each other again nearly eight years later, and again, this is at that party. Harwick was reportedly on the red carpet, and Pursehouse has been hired as a photographer. She rejected his advances. She cut off all communication with him, and so he punished her, broke into her house, and killed her, according to Deputy District Attorney Victor Avila, as he explained it to uh, Law and Crime. Um, Avila also claimed that following the event, Pursehouse found Harwick's phone number and texted her after a short conversation in which the defendant asked to speak with Harwick further. She refused and set a boundary that their conversation at the event was all that was needed and to stop any further interactions. Several of Pursehouse's texts, phone calls, and a crying voicemail were presented, which showed that he insisted on seeing and talking to her. Harwick blocked Pursehouse's number, and she was concerned for her safety. She got in. She got new locks on her windows. She had a handyman install security cameras at the home. Prosecutors explained Harwick emailed himself. Harwick emailed herself after the encounter what appeared to be a journal entry detailing how scared she was after seeing Pursehouse. She called him obsessive and scary. The email stated. So there was a text message that was presented in court, and um, it was from January 17th of 2020. She texted him after he was trying to, I guess, uh, proceed from their communications at that event. He, she says to him, I think it was really good that we were able to speak last night. I'm sure there's a lot more that you want to process and say to me, but I think that was a lot for both of us. I hope you were able to hear me last night when I said that I was sorry for anything that caused you suffering and that I forgive you for the things that you did to me. I think right now it's best to have some space and I don't mean that in a negative way. The past is sad and triggering for both of us. I think we ended our talk last night well. We can be civil from a distance, respect each other, and move forward with our own lives. Um, she seems like a really good therapist. Uh, moving on with the article, it was uh, Chavez in his testimony says it was a very tense, very anxious, and very fearful night for her in many respects. Um, Harvick went out for a fun night with some girlfriends to a burlesque show on the night of the murder. She returned a text 
from her best friend Robert Koshland. When she got home around 1 a.m., it was about a restaurant he wanted to try in Scotland where he, his wife, and Harwick planned to visit in April. She responded, wow, that looks great, he previously said, and within 10 minutes, she was dead. So at the crime scene, investigators discovered the French doors leading into Harwick's home had been shattered when they arrived on the scene, according to the prosecution DNA, which was gathered from a smear of blood on the doors and on a blood stain on the floor matched Pursehouse's DNA. DNA collected from under Howrick's fingernails also matched Pursehouse's DNA. Detectives also found a syringe at the crime scene, which they assumed was filled with heroin, but chemists at the FBI tested the syringe and confirmed it was actually a lethal dose of nicotine. It was poison, Attorney Avila said. If you've ever seen um, people that vape, sometimes they'll make their own vape juices, and if they want to put nicotine in it, you can literally purchase liquid nicotine, which if you consume it um, in anything larger than small quantities, and by small I mean 3 to 6, 12, 24 milligrams, um, it, you will die. So he fills a syringe with it, and he's trying to, that means he's trying to kill her, inject her with it. As per detectives, Pursehouse grabbed Harwick inside her home and strangled her. He then dragged her to the third floor balcony after he got frightened by her roommate's scream and threw her over the ledge. Harwick's pelvis was shattered. She sustained brain and liver damage. The prosecution said she breathed her last breath at the hospital just after 3 a.m. As the trial unfolded, they... Uh, we're displaying some more of the text messages that she had sent out. One of them said, Gareth found my number online and messaged me. I told him I didn't want to talk. I wished him the best, but was his response was still obsessive and scary. Handyman comes tomorrow for more locks on windows, and I ordered pepper spray. Uh, well, uh, it didn't help. So what did the, uh, the defense say? So in its opening statements, the defense claimed Purse House was heartbroken and depressed. Uh, defense attorney Evan Franzel started by listing the messages Pursehouse sent to Harwick. I have a lot to say. Please give me a chance to say it. Can we meet again? I wish is I could do something more. Please, please, the attorney said. According to the defense, seeing Harwick at the event sent him into a deep, debilitating depression that he was not able to overcome. And then he says, as he's giving his opening statement, the evidence will show that running into her at that event sent him into a thick, fog of depression and made him feel that the only way he could get relief from that pain was to go and talk to her. The evidence will show he never intended on killing her. Uh, well, while referring to the syringe found at the crime scene, Franzel claimed that Pursehouse broke into Harwick's house to talk to her and he planned on killing himself, not Harwick. He also added that Pursehouse did not throw Harwick over the balcony ledge, but instead she ran to the railing and tried to climb over it to get away from her ex-boyfriend. He set a chain of motions into actions that led to her death. So what are we arguing about then? I guess we're arguing about degrees. I mean, either way, you slice that. That's first-degree murder. Um, so the defense is trying to get over it by saying... It can't be first-degree murder. I didn't go there to kill her. I went there to have a conversation. Um, in the process of doing that, however, she ends up dead because she was so afraid of him that she threw herself over a third-story balcony or fell. I guess that's a theory. 
I'm not, I, don't, I don't think that that's going to fly. But if the jury believes that story, then I guess there's, you still have felony murder because of the burglary. Uh, the burglary, he goes in there, he's trespassing, he forcefully enters in with the intention of committing a felony, whether it be theft or assault or battery or something or what else. Uh, but if in the process you commit a felony um, and somebody dies, it's called felony murder, you're still guilty of murder. And so um, in this case, it's not much of a defense, it's, it's really an intent defense. I didn't mean to kill her, it just happened. And so th- there, there's not much to see with respect to that. I mean, the guy's not getting away with this. And there's, you know, they're not saying that he didn't do it. I mean, they're saying he didn't do it. They're saying that if he did it, he didn't mean to do it is basically what the defense is. I got to read that again. What is that defense? Um, Franzel claimed that Pursehouse broke into Harwick's house to talk and he planned on killing himself. He did not throw her over the balcony. She ran to the railing and tried to climb over it to get away from her. And then she fell. Well, I don't know, man. Um, I think the evidence of the strangulation, uh, the marks around her neck would suggest otherwise. Uh, going back, I mean, the Jesus, the uh, injuries that she had. He strangled her, dragged her to the third floor balcony. Pelvis was shattered. She sustained brain and liver damage. She breathed her last at the hospital at 3 a.m. So that's what's going on with the trial. That trial is ongoing, and I have not been following that case all that closely other than to know that it exists. I have not uh, listened to any of the testimony from that trial other than bits and pieces here and there. So um, I don't know everything that's going on in that case as far as the evidence. I imagine that there would have been evidence of strangulation if that's what's being alleged, but, you know, it's neither here nor there. The reason I was interested in that case is just because it's piggybacking off of some of the other stuff, mental illness, and the reasons why people place others that are weaker than them at peril. The, the one case we talked about earlier this morning, we talked about the case of Trump, Thomas. We talked about the case of Thomas Rodon, how he killed his son, because of some kind of mental illness. And there's something else going on with that guy. Obviously, severe substance abuse. He's making statements in court that he owns the NFL. Um, I don't know if he was trying to do that because he's trying to feign um, an insanity defense, which isn't going to work because he's already um, up and down kind of acknowledged that he knew what he did was wrong, which is kind of the benchmark for an insanity defense. You have to be so mentally impaired as to not be able to understand right from wrong. He very clearly understood right from wrong. He's warning his grandfather of what he's about to see. He's telling the cops that he did this, and he's telling it in cold blood, and, you know, that defense is dead. He could say that he owns whatever he wants. It's not going to work. Then you get Brandy Hutchins, you know, probably also with a um, undiagnosed mental illness, or maybe it's diagnosed again. I don't know what happened in that custody case. I don't have all the information on it, um, and it leads to the murder of her son. We have this... Uh, this guy that was stalking Amy Harwick, he uh, finds her nine years later and can't handle the fact that she wants her space and has moved on. I think at that point she dated Drew Carey for a spell and, you know, she's doing great. She's this famous uh, therapist in Hollywood and she's living this great life and he's working as a photographer. He couldn't handle it and so um, he loses his mind and he kills her. Um, assuming that he's going to be found guilty in that case. I mean, where, where, where do you chalk that up? And it, it, it takes me back to the Johnny Depp case and how people were jumping so hard down Amber Heard's throat because 
of what were perceived lies because she couldn't get it straight about whether or not she donated millions of dollars to some charity or, or whatnot, or some of the stories came out not exactly 100% true, but some of the other evidence that didn't get in suggesting that Johnny Depp um, actually did kick her in the back in front of people and knock her down. There was evidence of that. Um, I stated on the when we addressed that episode the last time that I wasn't sure why that evidence got in. There was a deposition uh, that took place um, where they did address some of those things. For whatever reason, the defense didn't bring it in. But the guy where that text message uh, came in about Johnny Depp uh, kicking Amber Heard in the back, uh, well, I mean, it was brought up in a deposition. It wasn't like they didn't have an opportunity to go through it. It just wasn't brought out. And, you know, not to revisit that case, but the point being is that, gosh, I think it's really important for everybody in life, not just men, but men and women, to understand what their physical limitations are. But not just that, to understand what they are physically capable of doing. And I'll tell you what, um, one of the best things that ever happened in my life was uh, being a part of the wrestling team in high school, um, engaging in martial arts in the way that I did. Uh, Because prior to that, you know, as a 14-year-old kid, I mean, I was 14 years old, 120 pounds, soaking wet. Um, you know, by the time I hit my senior year of high school, I was wrestling at 152 pounds, but I only weighed 145. Right now, I walk around at about 200 pounds. But back then, I mean, I was a skinny, smaller guy and, um, you know, a wrestler. But prior to that, kids are kind of delusional about what they're able to do strength-wise because they're used to engaging with children. Well, when you get into high school and you're like 14 years old, and you're going up against the 18-year-old senior um, there's a, a big physical discrepancy there. I remember the first time I ever stepped on a wrestling mat, I wrestled a guy that was littler than I. I mean, he, he I think he wrestled at the 112 weight class. Um, I was like, hell with this guy. I could take this guy, whatever. I, I had stepped on the mat with my shoes on. It was a big no-no. Um, and the guy called me out on it. He's like, all right, your penalty is you got to wrestle me. He's like, I'll wrestle you. And then um, I step on the mat, and then uh, he did some kind of a move. Next thing I knew, I'm, like, flying over this guy's shoulder, and I land flat on the... Sorry for pounding, but I landed uh, flat on my back on the mat, and um, I got the wind knocked out of me. It was a rude awakening to wrestling. And in retrospect, I wonder how I didn't just quit the team right then and there because that was really embarrassing. It was in front of the whole team. Everybody saw, you know, here's my first day on the wrestling team, and, you know, that happens. Um, I learned very quickly that there are people in this world and you just don't know what they're capable of doing um, that are bigger, better, stronger, faster, whatever than you. And they could make you look really silly and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But, you know, that's not even the worst of it. I remember um, I had two different wrestling coaches in high school. And I remember a second wrestling coach he was a wrestler. He came from Oklahoma. I believe he wrestled at the University of Oklahoma. And um, he was the scariest man to this day that I've ever encountered. To this day, I have, like, nightmares um, about that guy and just the little things that he would say. And, you know, the guy was so Oklahoma. He'd say, 
he would say things to me that I still, I say to this day, I say to my kids, like, you know, your dog didn't practice or he did something bad in practice, but like, Serato, you got eggs on your face, son. You got eggs on your face. And I'm thinking, I got eggs on my face. What is that? What is he talking about? And those little sayings like that, or you'd say something or, you know, ask him a question. I was like, Serato, look, let's not pick the fly shit out the pepper, okay? <laughs> like, all right, coach. Um, well understood. Just these classics. I love that guy, but he was terrifyingly strong. And then when I say strong, and I mean, back then I was 145 pounds or whatever it would have been, 130, 145, my junior to senior year. Um, but um, even now at 200 pounds, I don't, I'm not sure. The guy was like a brick. There's no part of him that was soft. He was just constantly just, the way that I'm picturing in my head, I'm sure that is, is a lot bigger and stronger than what was reality. But in my head, he was the Incredible Hulk. Um, you couldn't do anything. If you try to do a move on him, he had the answer. Um, you, you're not going to outstrength that guy. I remember I was lifting weights. Um, it was, um, I don't remember what the weight was. It was either 135 or 165 or something. And, you know, I'm repping. I'm feeling pretty good. I got my 8 to 10 reps in. And then he comes in there and um, throws 225 on the bar and just to make everybody look uh, silly and let him know that he's the boss. He just reps out 25 reps. It's like, all right, coach, I get you. Um, and the worst part of it, you know, is if you had to wrestle him, I mean, he would never go full bore, but he would always make you understand that, look, there's nothing you could do. He could literally do anything he wanted to do to me, throw me around like I was a rag doll, uh, like I was a little girl, like I was a baby, like I was a child. And I was a child. But the point being, when you have that lesson early on in life, you have a profound respect for what people are capable of and the damage that you can inflict on in others. And I feel like people that go through that kind of a thing, on average, on average, with some exceptions, obviously, but on average, do not find themselves entangled in these domestic events where they're domestically violating another individual, male or female. Uh, they just have, they don't have a need to do that. They have a, a need to be calm, control the situation physically. They don't have any of these insecurities that lead to these events. I had mentioned that Johnny Depp, I felt like, I, I don't think, I doubt that he had ever had that experience because he's an actor. He doesn't look like much of an athlete. Um, you know, this this mom, this, this dad, I don't know what their backgrounds are, but I feel like the deficiencies that you have early on in life from your inability to know what your limits are in the world contribute greatly to how you treat other people down the road. And there's this weird thing that is happening right now in, in, in America where you get like the Andrew Tates and these other, the fresh and fit podcasts where they're teaching younger men about how to mistreat women, how to treat women, but how to mistreat women. And, you know, not all of their messages are bad, but it's a lot of, uh, you know, they're trying to elevate themselves above women, not knowing how to deal with rejection. I'm very old school, man. When I used to go talk to girls, if I got rejected, you got rejected. And this is kind of how it was in high school. Nowadays, I feel like guys can't take it. They can't handle it. Like, um, people get so upset that women have preferences. Oh, I, I don't want to date anybody that's uh, six foot or under. Uh, and it's like people get so upset. Oh, you're... You're shaming short people. It's like, no, they're allowed to have preferences, man. Just go find the next one. There's three and a half billion women in the world. You know, people cannot handle rejection. They can't handle the idea that they're not going to be viewed as a king in their respective fantasy universe. It's just, you know, with the inability to deal with rejection, without any ability in how to handle reality, uh, you're going to deal with these 
what people would perceive as mental illness. In this case, I don't know what was going on with Thomas Rhoda. There's something, you know, that might be above my pay grade. But with Brandy Hutchins, she could not handle the fact that they had been in court for however long it had been and that she had lost her case and she had a, a acknowledged that dad was going to be raising her son for the next eight years and she was going to have visitation rights probably, but... Rather than being able to deal with that, she murders her son and her 19-year-old daughter that had nothing to do with it for no reason, for no reason, because she couldn't handle it. This guy, Amy Harwick's ex, Purse House, uh, can't handle the fact that Amy has moved on and built for herself a substantial career in Hollywood, that she's this well-known celebrity. And so he can't take the rejection so much. He's trying to be as nice as possible. So he says, screw it, I'm going over there. And he comes, goes there with a syringe full of nicotine, either to inject himself or to inject her, or maybe to kill her and then inject himself. He just didn't do it because he's chicken-ass. And he kills her. I feel, it, you know, I'm starting to sound like the old man, but it, it, so many of these are deficiencies from lessons that you didn't learn in childhood because you never tested yourself. People that get to be, you know, older that have tested themselves or have put themselves in anything that's worthwhile doing, you know, running a marathon, doing an Ironman competition, you know, competing in martial arts, um, competing in academia, doing something of note uh, with your life uh, where you don't feel so inferior, where you've been validated by your own experiences, your own personal triumphs is not going to have difficulty recognizing that ah, you win some, you lose some. You move on, fight, and live. Uh, you live to fight another day. You don't have a need to uh, take somebody's life because it didn't work out the way that you had hoped. And, you know, I fully recognize that I am speaking out of turn right now, but um, it is my observations from these cases and what is going on in the world and the lessons that some young men are learning. And, you know, if you're a young man and you're listening to this show, do not let another man tell you how to be a man. You figure that out on your own. You go out there and you find out what you want to do. You pursue something that's hard. You find something that's difficult. I don't care what it is. You want to join the baseball team. You want to make varsity wrestling. You want to be a varsity football player. You want to uh, prep yourself for D1 college. You want to get yourself a scholarship. Then you do the things that are required uh, to make that happen. And do not blame others when you fall short. Because, look, it costs a lot. The things that you want in life are often pursued by many and achieved by a very select few. The select few are the ones, most of the time, that were able to pay the cost. Look, you want to be a lawyer, it's really freaking hard. You got to excel in undergrad. You got to excel in law school. You got to be able to pass a bar that most people fail, especially in California. They got the hardest bar exam in the nation. And, but, well, you don't pass it, you can't be a lawyer. Well, it's not fair. Well, that's just how it is. That is how it is. And if you don't, if you can't do it, it's not a big deal. Go do something else. If you aim for something that's really high, you know, go for it. If you fail, you're going to ascend pretty freaking high and get, you know, something worthwhile out of life. But you have to learn how to fail. You have to learn how to deal with rejection. You have to learn these things. If you don't, who knows what's, how, who knows how that's going to manifest itself in your life. But for these three individuals that we discussed uh, this morning, it ended in tragedy. And, well, folks, it's about that time. Um, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you for listening to the entire show. 
Thank you for being with me, for all my loyal listeners. Thank you for following me. Listen, it's the weekend. Go spend some time with your family. Go make some memories. Make sure you lock your doors. Make sure everybody's safe. Hug your children. Hug hug your family. Hug your wife, your husband. I'm going to see you guys all next week. Bye-bye.